So, do you like unusual names? What is the un- most unusual name you've ever heard? Uh, thank you. <laughs> My son created that alter ego for me, so he knows me well. What's the most unusual name you've ever heard? What? Oh, I know what, I know, I know, I know, very good. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute, actually. Anybody else? I like unusual names. I kind of collect unusual names. There's a family in Nashville that uh, had a little boy, and they named him Toy, and their last name is Train. So the boy's name is Toy Train. In that same congregation, they have uh, a family that's last name is Plain, and after the family named their child Toy, they had a little girl, and they named her Arrow. So she's Arrow Plain, so airplane and Toy Train. And then there's a family over in Kentucky uh, that uh, they have a little daughter. The family's name is Day, and they named their daughter Holly, and the, she's Holly Day. So there's a prince, high school principal in Brentwood, Tennessee, and his name is Junior High. He's a high school principal. I always thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and then uh, Orangelo and Jamangelo, uh, Lomangelo, which if you kind of phonetically spell that out, there's uh, two little twins, I think, born in Alabama. It's uh, Orange Jello and Lemon Jello. That's how they named their child. And uh, my wife's dad talks about a family he knew that named their kids Temperance and Buckwheat. Uh, okay, I guess you run out of names every, every once in a while. Yeah, Tracy. Noah, I, I never picked up on that. So your, your parents started this because, you know, you have, you have Bob and Lex. I mean, that's perfectly fine, right? And then they come along and they have children and they name them Tracy and Slate. That's perfect. But then they have a daughter named Pasha. And every child born in your family since has had a weird name for three generations. I have the oddest family names. Not weird, but it's unusual. They're not just common names. So, What? Go weird. Okay, you can say that, but they're friends of mine. Oh, they were friends of mine. So. <laughs> but they've uh, um, um, got uh, Thea's kids are uh, Hunter, Barkley, and Mari. Yeah, so... Just unusual names. All right, so uh, names. Uh, names are fascinating to us. You know, I don't want to get overly textual here, but biblically names are important, aren't they? I mean, God comes along, names them Adam, and then Eve is a name, mother of all living. And you've got, uh, you've got Abram, father, James Abraham, father of many nations. Sarah becomes Sarah. And then you get to the New Testament, and, and the most famous one, of course, well, maybe most famous when Saul becomes Paul, and maybe more famous, Simon becomes Peter, from a little pebble to a giant stone to a rock. Um, the only time I read that I know of, the church changing someone's name, they take a guy by the name of Joses and change his name to Barnabas, which means encourager. Names are important. I, I, if we had time today, and we don't, we, we go around the room and let you tell about how you named your children, how you came up with the names. Some of you talk about arguments that you had. Some of you talk about how you're so happy your husband didn't win because you'd have a really oddly named child. Some of you talk about, you know, this is a family name. It's been in our family for generations, you would say. And, you know, it's different names. So uh, names are, are important. And names are important to God. You look in the Bible, and there are Bible names. There's 
names for God's family, the church, Acts chapter 2, the, the church of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, the, the body the church is called, the household of God, Ephesians chapter 2, the way, simply uh, just different Bible names, that's not all of them, the church of the living God, the church of the firstborn, there are other Bible names out there, when, when names come along, names are important, I, I like names, my favorite name for the church though, and some of you need to listen very carefully, my favorite name is the church of Christ. And it's not my favorite name because of a, a denominational sense. I, I like that when I'm traveling and out of town and we're going somewhere and I'm looking for a place, I can find a church of Christ and know that in all likelihood there will be some similarities to the worship that I enjoy and that I'm comfortable with. I like the identity because I'll walk in that building and there'll be someone that I will probably know because while we're a family of several million people, there there's a it seems to be a small family everywhere I go. I seem to run into somebody I know. I, I like those things. Again, I don't, I don't believe the church is designed by God, or I don't need to say it that way. I need to say it this way. The church is not designed by God to be a denomination. God has no desire that his people be divided. Jesus prayed that his people would all be one. So denominations are not God's plan. And so I don't like the name Church of Christ because it's a denominational name. I like it most of all for this reason. Every time I hear that, that word, the church of Christ, my mind's weird, okay, and it does a little weird trick. I hear the church that is of Christ. The church that is of Christ. Every time I hear it, that's what I think. We are the church that is of Christ. Everything we are is of Christ. And the most important word in that phrase is Christ. My, my, my good friend David Shannon says that... Uh, you can measure the quality of a sermon or a lesson by how quickly it is in the lesson before Christ shows up. We're all about Christ. When, when we baptized the young man today, we baptized him into Christ. When we make the good confession, we confess, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The most important word in our name is Christ. Because the fact is, if we're not the church of Christ we're not the church that is of Christ. We're not the church of Christ at all. And what I'd like for you to hear, if you could, for the rest of your life, anytime you hear that phrase, the church of Christ, I'd like for you to hear the church that is of Christ. Because we are of Christ, because we have made a choice, we've made a decision that we're going to belong to Him. You see, it's He who said, if you believe not that I am He, you will die in your sins. We're of Christ. We believe that the text is true. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and be with child, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. We do not demythologize the Bible. Wellhausen came along in around the 1600s, and, and he began to teach that the Bible should be treated like any other piece of literature. It should be held to the same standards, and a lot of people bought into that. And, and that's perfectly fine, except if you're here today, and that's a weird statement, because you are here. If you weren't here, you wouldn't hear me say if you were here today. Okay. But I don't know how to say it. Today. If you're here today, part of the reason you're here is because you do not believe the Bible is like any other book. You believe that book you hold in your hand or that you're looking at on your device. You believe that that book contains the Word of God, that it is the Word of God, that it is inspired, that it's God's message to us today. So we don't, deem, we don't take the 
the miracles of the Bible and try to explain them away. We believe if God could write a book, if God could create a world, if God could do these things, then he could do miracles and he could send his son. We believe the word became flesh and came and dwelt among us. I wonder what went through John's mind as the Spirit led his pen to write those words and came and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled with us, set up his tent in our community. He lived with people. The Word, chapter 1, verse 1 of John says, was eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was of God. That, that Word that was eternal, that, that Word came to earth, that God came to earth, and then John says, and we beheld his glory. And I wonder if his mind went back to the transfiguration. You remember when the two prophets appeared with Jesus. And James and Peter and John were there. And Jesus, the text says, became a ball of light. He transformed into light, basically. We beheld his glory. Peter speaks up. It's good we're here. Let's build three tabernacles. And God clears his throat. He <clears throat> says, this is my son. There's just one tabernacle. We beheld his glory. Glory is the only gotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I'm not preaching about that, but you got to, Realize there's a, mod there's a uh, conjunction there, grace and truth. One without the other does not work on either side of it. We believe they took this ball of light and they could not have done it without his own willingness to allow it to happen and they crucified him. But more important, we believe that on that Sunday morning they arrived and that angel said he is not here for he is risen we are of Christ, who we believe someday will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God. And that God will call all his people home. In the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of the Father. Jesus is Lord. So, what I want to tell you today is, there are some implications to being a part of the church that is of Christ. That's interesting. I've never had that happen before. And if you preach with slides, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it presents a problem if you don't have slides. <laughs> I do know what I'm going to say, but the slides help me. What I want to do today is give you three implications. I don't like three-point sermons, but this is three points. Three implications to being a part of a church that is of Christ. is we, If we are really of Christ, it means something. We're not just a church on the corner. There ought to be something special about us if we belong to Christ. So number one, there's a doctrinal side to being a part of the church that's of Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, that he is the head of the church. He's the boss. He's in charge. He's number one. There's a doctrinal side to this. It involves everything that we believe, everything that we do. You see, he came and he promised, I will build my church. 
Paul will write it this way. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He is our doctrinal foundation. It's he who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. There's a doctrinal side to being a part of the church that is of Christ. And there are a lot of people that seem to miss this today. They don't understand it. They don't, they don't get it. Here's what it means. The fact there's a doctrinal side to being part of the church that is of Christ means that if he's spoken, it's word. I, I preach a sermon. It's one of my favorite sermons to preach. It's called The First Question. When we come together as a church, if we are a part of the church that is of Christ, when we come together as a church, the first question is not who will be happy about this and who will be upset about this. The first question is not can we afford this or can we not afford this. The first question is not what will culture say about this, what will the people of our town say about this. The first question is, has God said anything about it? That's the doctrinal side. But, but the fact is, Sadly, there are some people who believe that is all there is. That there's just a doctrinal side. And they spend all their life and all their energies arguing over doctrine. All it is is a body of belief. And if you get the body of belief right, nothing else matters. I, I shouldn't tell this story. But I'm going to. So, um, I'm a Tennessee Titans fan. I think Tracy is too. Um, they've been to the Super Bowl one time in their history. When they were at the Super Bowl, I was preaching in Nashville, the Granny White Church. Our, our, our elders would close every service by having what they called uh, elder remarks. So, after I preached, after the invitation song, after everything had happened before the closing prayer, an elder would stand up and make remarks. I never heard those remarks because there was a lady in our church. Her, in our church, her name was Mabel. I met Mabel the first Sunday I was there. Mabel was in her 80s. Her husband had been the editor of the Tennessee, the, the Nashville Banner, and he had died. And uh, Mabel was a person of strong opinions. So the first Sunday I'm there. After I finish the sermon, I go to the back like I think all preachers ought to do, and I try to speak to people and be nice to people. I'm standing in the foyer, I meet Mabel. And she said, I didn't like, and then she told me what she didn't like. I was kind and nice and smiled and said, thank you. Next Sunday, preached. Went to the front, and while the elders making close remarks, I didn't hear them because Mabel walked in the foyer, and she said, I didn't like, and she gave me her list of I didn't likes. And for that became the habit every week. She would be the first person to see me, and she would complain. Six weeks into my stay at that church, she said, I didn't like, and then she said, and by the way, there's a Coca-Cola cake in the kitchen for you. And about every two or three months, Mabel would bring me a Coca-Cola cake, and I didn't care what she didn't like because it was perfectly fine because she made the best Coca-Cola cake of anybody I've ever met. Well, the Sunday before the Titans were to play in the Super Bowl, the elders had met, and they decided we're going to move our Sunday afternoon, our Sunday 6 o'clock service. We're going to move it to 2 o'clock, and then after the service, we're going to set up a giant screen TV in the in the in the. Uh, the, the, the fellowship hall, and, and we can watch the game together. Anybody wants to and enjoy it. Awesome. 
I didn't know they made that decision. Didn't know anything about it. Nothing about it at all. They got up Sunday morning. I preached my sermon. They're making their comments. They're explaining what's happening. I'm in the foyer getting my I did not likes from Mabel from that day. And a man storms out. This man had been a part of that church for three generations. He didn't like anything either. He called the elders the Sanhedrin. He didn't like them. He was always mad about something, and he wanted everybody to know it. And this Sunday, he, was, he, thought, he always thought we were unsound, and we weren't right doctrinally. He was going to make sure we got it right doctrinally. And that Sunday, he stood in the foyer. The elders had made an announcement about the times of service. I didn't even know the announcement they made. I knew nothing about it. And while they made the announcement, he stormed out. And this man that was doctrinally right, going to make sure we had it all right, cussed me out in the foyer for us having it wrong. And I remember thinking, there's something wrong about this picture. If all there is is a doctrinal side, listen folks, let me nail it down clearly. There is a doctrinal side. When God has said something, we're obligated to do it, right? But that's not all there is. Matt Habner said you can have a head full of scripture and a heart full of sin, and sometimes it's a long way from the head to the heart. There's a doctrinal side, but that is not all there is. Listen, the truth is, number two, there is also an emotional side to being a part of a church that is of Christ. There's an emotional side to this. And if we miss that, we miss something really rich. Remember, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we're not careful, we run past the first part of that to the second part too quickly. One who said, keep my commandments said, if you love me. Our keeping of commandments is based upon the fact that we love him. The fact that he is our savior. The fact that he loved us enough to give his life for us. There's an extreme emotional side there. See, he is the boss. He is the agenda setter. He is the the one who sets the rules. He is the, the one who sets the command. But the fact of the matter is that the Savior of the body is not just the Savior of the body. The one who is ahead is also the one who died. The one who is ahead is also the one who sacrificed. The one who is ahead is also the one who saves. He is my Savior. On the birthday of the church, the day they rolled out the cake and blew out the candles, Acts chapter 2, the text says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Yes, he is the head. He's in charge. He's the boss. But there's much more to it than that. You see, the truth of the matter is he is my Savior. He's my Savior. There's no desire and intent today to get all emotional about that, but I could real quickly because I did not deserve his salvation. I did not earn the right to be his child by some good work that I did. He is much more than I am. You see, the fact is that he loved me. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you, all shall, shall, you also shall appear with him in glory. Now, don't let me shake your faith today, but you probably know this already. Uh, if any, anybody here speak a foreign language, anybody speak a language other than uh, English? Anybody speak Spanish? You know, I got some Germans, maybe French. I had, uh, I, you speak what? 
Pig Latin. Okay, my dad could speak Pig Latin. I, I never could figure it out. I speak Alabama. <laughs> it's our own language sometimes. Anytime you do a translation, I've tried to, I go to Central America and South America about once every year or two, and every time I'm down there, I'm discerning. Before I go down, I'm going to learn Spanish. While I'm there, I decide I'm going to learn Spanish. When I come back, I decide I'm going to learn Spanish, and then I forget about it. And every year, every time I go back, I'm going to learn Spanish. I, I, I'm good at Spanish. You just Any word you take, you add an O to it and put an L or a lot at the beginning, and that's Spanish to me. Not being making fun of it, but it's just different. I can't, I'm not good with languages. I'm not very good with the English language, so why do I think I could? But, but here's, here's what I know. With a translation, what a translator does is they add words to make a sentence make sense. If you took up the American Standard Translation, it is an extreme literal translation, and the verses sometimes don't read real fluidly because what they've done is they've tried to have a literal translation. King James, New King James, ESV, NIV, New, uh, New Revised Standard, whatever translation you use, almost every translation you pick up, if you look at the notes in the front of it, it will tell you that some words have been added to help it be easier for the English person to read. And they will tell you that usually those words are in italics. So if you ever see words in italics, no, they've been added for use for ease of reading. Usually it really helps us. I don't think it really helps us here. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. I think for too many Christians, Christ is their Sunday. He's maybe their 4 o'clock Wednesday afternoon. He, he, he may be their Christmas or their New Year's when they start making resolutions. Take out the italics words. Here's why Acts chapter 17, the disciples turn the world upside down. When Christ... Our life shall appear. He is my everything. We consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's Jesus who said, if anyone will come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. And Paul wrote it so beautifully, John wrote it so beautifully in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. Where John, this disciple whom Jesus loves, said, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. He is our example. We preach Christ. I love to preach. I'm, I like to preach about service. I like to preach about using your talents. I like to preach about church growth. I like to preach about submission to Christ. I like to preach about confession. I like to preach about salvation. I'm really weird. I like to preach about giving. But it doesn't matter what you preach about, Christ is central in all of it. We preach Christ first and foremost. He is the center of our preaching. He's who we talk about. Philip opens his mouth, the same scripture preached to them, Jesus. He is always a message. The result, the eunuch, is baptized. The text doesn't say anything at all about baptism. Philip preached to him about Jesus, the result was baptism. You can preach about many things, but Jesus is always the center. In my favorite, one of, in one of my favorite passages, we're ambassadors pleading on Christ's behalf, as if he was pleading in our, through us, be reconciled to God. He's our message. You see, we, we miss it if we miss the emotional side to it. 
We follow him because Christ is the way. Christ is not a truth. You know, you talk about people today, they say, you have your truth, I have my truth. You see, Christ is our truth because Christ is the truth. He's not a truth. He's not one in many truths. We believe he is the truth, that he is the way, that he's the life. So there's an emotional side to it. And many Christians, listen carefully, miss the doctrinal side of Christianity. They just love Jesus. That's really nice. But if you don't do what he said, you don't love him. That's what he said. There is a doctrinal side to it. But just as many Christians miss the emotional side to it, they get all the doctrine right, but they don't realize the deepness of a relationship with Christ. If people walk in these doors and all they know is they got the five acts of worship right, and they don't know God, they don't see God in here, we're not a part of a church that is of Christ. We're part of a church that keeps the doctrine right. Again, I'm not discounting doctrine. I'm saying these are equal things. But I want to suggest to you third today that there is a practical side to being a part of the church that is of Christ. You think I looked at my watch because I was checking my time. I got a message. There's a practical side to this. You see, Paul wrote it this way in Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. This is the, the, the pragmatic side of churchianity. It's the it's the program side of church. And it's sometimes where we miss it. How do we program in the church? Well, if we're a part of the church that is of Christ, that's like Christ, then our programs will be like Him. What's the text say about in that one-word commentary that Dr. Luke wrote about the life of Jesus? He went about doing good. So our programs should center on going about doing good. We walk in love as Christ loved. And as he said, we're to love one another. That is the start of what we do as God's people. We start, it starts here. The old phrase, you know, if we learn to love each other like Christ taught us to love each other, we'd have to bar the doors to keep the people out. I don't know if that's a true statement or not. But I do know that in most of our churches, we need more love. It involves a lot of things. It involves how we treat each other. <laughs> Is it true that in most churches that there are people that sit in the same building on a Sunday and sing in different parts of the building, oh, how I love Jesus, that after the service, because of some spat or some disagreement or some silly argument, won't speak to each other? And both think they're going to go to heaven? If that's you... Kiss and make up. Get it right. We've got to treat each other right. It involves not only how we treat each other, but second, and I will tell you the second thing as soon as it loads on the screen. <laughs> there are like five of these. It involves valuing our fellowship. Now, I've got to be very, very careful here because the next thing I'm going to say could be misinterpreted. So I'll case it in a story. It was December the 28th. 
I was scheduled to speak. It was a song before I was scheduled to speak. There were 3,000 teenagers in the room. And I'm going to stand up and talk about Jesus. And I get a text from my wife, from Melanie. And the text says, Johnny just died. Johnny and Diane Ryan are some of our dearest friends. When we first started preaching, they were the, the old folks in the church that took us into their wings. And we'd go to Captain D's. We had no money, and they didn't either, really. And we'd get in and come back to their house. When it snowed, we'd get in Johnny's Jeep and go ride around in it. When a big football game was on, they were big Alabama fans, too. We'd watch it together. When there was some problem at church, I would go and cry on Johnny's shoulder. Not literally, I didn't hug guys in those days. But I would go and I'd commiserate with him. They were dear friends. So what I say, I say in light of this. It may be painful to hear, but COVID actually helped us in some ways. We all lost someone we love from it, so I'm not saying it was good. But do you remember... You remember that first Sunday? I'm so glad our teenagers and our young people in the church saw this. Because I'm afraid many of us that are my age or older or maybe a few years younger don't really value fellowship. It's just always been there. Do you remember that first Sunday when you came back after being apart for two or three or four months? Do you remember it? Some of you cried, didn't you? I did. <laughs> Every week for several months, we'd have people come back. And I'd cry again. I wanted to buy a confetti cannon, and when the new family would come back to blast that cannon, well, I'd celebrate with them. Perhaps, maybe, just perhaps, our young people will value fellowship in ways that we did not. It, it involves, third, not only how we treat each other, not only how we value, value our fellowship, but it involves a third thing, and that third thing is extremely important. It involves our forbearance with each other. It, it involves um, how, we, how we serve. It involves how we evangelize. It involves um, how we program what we do together as a church. It involves how we take care of each other. You see, the, the program side of Christianity, the loving each other side of Christianity, says that when we start putting together what we're going to do as a church, we're going to act like Jesus. We're going to strive. We're going to do our very best to be like Him. This doctrinal side, this emotional side, but this pragmatic side it involves our outreach. We're just going to keep going through these because our time is gone, but real quickly, I want us to notice just a few more things. I don't know if we can make these, maybe even take them off the slide and just put them up there and we'll flip through them real quick. Maybe you can do that. Sometimes I like to think who has a right to characterize the church. I, I hear people, and, and you probably do too, some of you do, I hear people talk bad about the church. They'll use phrases like, you know, the, the church isn't this or the church isn't that. And what I often want to say is, what was the church like that you grew up in? How bad was it? I mean, and I'll sometimes we'll say, how many churches have you been to? And well, I've been to five or ten, and I don't know how many I've been to, over 500, probably closer to 1,000 congregations. You know how many churches of Christ are in the world? 
you, you don't because you can't number us. <laughs> Not being a denomination, there's no denominational headquarters. There's nowhere those numbers are kept. There's people that try to keep them. There's a guy in Nashville called Carl Royster, who's a dear friend of mine, who puts out a directory, but even he says it's impossible to number us. There's somewhere between, between 10 and 12,000 churches of Christ in the United States that we know about. But I'm told there are at least twice that many churches of Christ in India and probably three times that many in Africa. And we do not know how many times that many there are in China. And if you go around the globe and go from country to country, whether it's Antigua or Barbados or Guyana or Japan or Thailand, the Fiji Islands or New Zealand or Cuba. There are 500 churches of Christ in Cuba. We don't, we don't know how many there are in the world. When somebody tries to come along and characterize the church and say, the church isn't this. Oh, so there are 60,000 maybe churches of Christ in the world and you think you can characterize us all because you've been to three? Well, good for you. What I want to say to you is that when someone hurts the church, they hurt the Christ. As far as we know, and I, I, I think you would probably agree, we have no evidence and there's strong suspicion that, that, that Saul, who becomes Paul, never met Christ on this earth. He never had a conversation with him. He wasn't there when the crowd cried, crucify him, crucify him. But when Jesus appears to Saul on the road, as Saul was going to arrest Christians, and if the vote went up to kill him or to let him live, he would vote to kill him, that bright light appeared, and the voice out of the light, who was Christ himself, said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What had Saul done? Saul had hurt the church. And when you hurt the church, you hurt the Christ. You realize that? And if all you have to do is say bad things about the church, you criticize the songs and the singing, you criticize the preacher and the preaching, you criticize the elders and the shepherding, you criticize the classes and the teachers, you criticize the people, and all you have to do First of all, you won't attract anybody to Christ. And second, if you have kids, you'll probably never see them love the Lord for the rest of their life. And third, and most importantly, you're hurting Christ. You hurt the church. See, it's my desire to be a part of a church that is of Christ. And I think that's the most beautiful thing that I can imagine. How wonderful to belong to Him. Sometimes the church gets a bad reputation. Sometimes we earn that reputation. I've been places where I've seen that, and it's sad to see. I always think about my friend Ron. I lived in a town where there were a lot of people didn't like the Church of Christ. But I learned that I could go to any door in that town, any business in that town, and I could use Ron's name, and immediately the door would be opened. Sometimes corporately we get a bad name, but what I want to do in this world is I want to be Ron to those people. I want to be a person of such exemplary character, such love, such grace, such goodness, such truth, such right, that when people learn I'm a part of a church of Christ, they think, well, that must be a church that is of Christ. So you have a great place of importance in the church. You represent him to somebody in your life, to somebody in this world.
and maybe to a lot of people in this world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for letting us be together today. I pray, Father, that we will strive to be like your son. Thank you for sending him. Thank you, Lord, for coming. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your truth and your love. And Father, may we be good representatives of a church that belongs to you, that is like you in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening.